Do your palms sweat at the sight of a lengthy wine list? Do your eyes glaze over when people start talking about tannins, whatever those are? Wine doesn't have to be scary or stuffy, because you can join comedian and host Ben Schwartz, a self-proclaimed wine novice who teamed up with Wine Dialogues to create The Wine Down, a new podcast that makes learning about wine fun. In each episode, Ben and a guest comedian sit down with a wine expert to ask all the questions you've been too afraid to ask. Listen along as they taste wine, share toasts, and crack jokes in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you choose to listen. The Wine Dialogues is a project of the William Hill Estate Winery. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also having so much fun this week because every week at the end of the show, I ask you to reach out to me on social media if you disliked the show, specifically if you disliked it, and a bunch of you disobeyed. Because two weeks ago, we put out our latest in a series of episodes about little-known badasses of history, of the past. And many of you disobeyed orders and said positive things about it to me. Instead of using social media for pure evil, its designated purpose, how dare you, and one of you scamps even made a suggestion. I'm going to read that specific listener's name now. So, like, seriously, please be ready to, like, keep driving safely or keep walking safely. I don't want accidents. Just, like, I'm going to say their name. A fella named Nicholas Spear tweeted to me, quote, Love the podcast. You should do an episode on current badasses that we don't know but should. End quote. And great idea. Uh, get stoked, Nicholas. We're going to do that in like 30 seconds. So here it comes. And get stoked, everybody, because I'm joined by hilarious, cracked editor, columnist, and more Christy Harrison for this deep dive into awesome present day people doing positive things for the world that we all currently live in right now. So let's get into it. Please sit back or make a mental note to hit me up on Twitter at Alex Schmitty after you park your car, not before. No joke. Be safe. Either way, enjoy this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Chrissy Harrison, springing from the help of our friendly neighborhood listener, Nicholas Spear. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I am joined on the phone by Cracked editor, columnist, writer, so much more, Christy Harrison. Hey, Christy, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. This, is, this has been one of the most fun episodes to prep like ever. So thank you for doing this one with me. It's just like joyful, really good. It's joyful unless I start crying because these stories are really inspiring. And, you know, you just never know when you're just going to start weeping. Because today we're talking about current badasses who more people ought to know about. And when we say badass, we primarily mean people who are making the world better in, in particularly epic ways. Yeah. Yeah. Not like just people who look cool on motorcycles. I don't know what connotations are <laughs> for that word but <laughs> yeah these are good guys <laughs> let's get into uh, a couple of people their names are dr hawa abdi and then her daughters deka mohammed and amina mohammed deka mohammed and dr <laughs> amina mohammed correct because all of them are doctors in the country of somalia where as we looked into this i didn't realize that somalia has been in a on and off, but pretty much on civil war since the mid-1980s. Like, Somalia's yeah. had a civil war that is 
older than many of the people listening to this, which is incredible in a sad way. I didn't either. And I didn't get too deep into that because I know we wanted to talk about these women, but I forgot about Somalia just altogether. And I didn't realize they're still struggling. You're not alone. Uh, I I did too. And uh, many of us have. These people have not. They um, are from the country. And apparently in 1991, the government collapsed and Dr. Hawa Abdi was running a clinic on her like family's farm. Like they were just taking care of a couple of people they knew. And then when the government collapsed, uh, a lot of people needed help in a lot of ways. And so she started just seeing more and more patients and it grew into essentially a city. She and her daughters provide free medical care as best as they can to what grew into a village of 90,000 people. In this TED Talk, we'll link to her daughter, Dr. Dega Muhammad, is is asked about, oh, what are some things you run into as you do this job? And not even the first thing she says, because I would think it would be the headline, is she'll deal with about 300 patients per day, do 10 to 20 surgeries per day, and then also manage the camp on top of that. One of the things that was interesting about them is Dr. Abdi talked about, you know, managing this city of mostly women and children who've been destroyed by the civil wars and famine. And she only has two rules for getting help in their in their community. I think the first rule was, she said that the civil war is not about tribal or cultural differences, but either way, no one is allowed to bring in their divisions into the camp. Everyone's the same community. Yes, that's what the first rule. Second rule is if a man beats his wife, they're going to hospital jail. And they built a jail (laughs) to house the wife beaters. They, They are policing their own little community. Like they don't, they, they, put the men who beat their wives into jail, in the hospital. Um, it's such a bizarre, sad situation, but ex- inspiring because these women just kind of like, okay, this is what needs to be done. I can't even fathom me and my daughters becoming doctors together to <laughs> solve <laughs> these kind of problems. So it was very inspiring. It truly is, yeah, because they uh, started from this just clinic of, hey, people I know can come get some free care from me, and it grew into a 400-bed hospital, and then ultimately this refugee camp, and like just the organizational skills of figuring all that out. Right. Like, it, it, it's someone who somehow has just seen need and consistently met it on an unbelievable scale for decades. It's amazing. For decades, yeah. And I hear these stories and I'm like, it's amazing that they could keep up this kind of schedule. Right. But it also, especially in the TED Talk well, link, it seems like they give each other quite a bit of strength. Like they're all working mm-hmm. together. They're all supporting each other. And I mean, as much as they're facing this tremendous need, I feel like it would also be motivating. You know, like it's right there yeah. in front of you. You can't not have the energy to do it. I assume they live there. In the, I mean, like that's also where they live. This is part of their life is helping people. Yeah. Uh, and there's an NPR article about too. And yeah, it started on their family farm south of Mogadishu in Somalia. And they, I think they quote, Dr. Deka Muhammad, who literally says, like, you do work 24 hours. Like, it is, it, it's, they, uh, at 6 a.m., they start doing hospital rounds, and then they manage the camp the rest of the morning, and then do other gynecological work and other things from, they're basically doctors and mayors and surgeons all at once. And police. 
And <laughs> right, and and like you said, it, it shouldn't be understated. Like jailing the worst men, great, good job. Within that, they're trying to reform their own culture. Like on top of all of that, they're trying to like change the the hearts and minds of people that you know, are really suffering. Like everybody in the situation has been traumatized in some way, you know, and so they're trying to also educate men on how to treat women a very basic but important thing to understand when it's it's also just a hey this country exists and things are happening there but also it's exciting to hear that um in spite of it all there are people there doing just incredible humanitarian work again dr hawa abdi dr deka muhammad and dr amina muhammad check them out Who's who's a good next person from there? We've we've got quite a few people we're excited about. You brought in Dr. Father Boyle. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. Sure. Father Greg Boyle. Father Greg Boyle. Yeah. Father Greg Boyle. This is um, someone all the way in L.A., a place I'm at, mm-hmm. and uh, he yeah. is a he's a Jesuit priest who in 1986, he was made the pastor of Dolores Mission Church, which is in Boyle Heights in LA. And that's a neighborhood near downtown and in particular in the 80s was not doing well. It was the poorest parish in LA at the time. It was the most gang activity in LA at the time. And he did a lot of outreach and a lot of work to try to help this community that he had been given to take care of. And from there, he has built a multi-million dollar nonprofit business called Homeboy Industries. And in interviews, he says that was kind of a tongue-in-cheek name, but it's pretty much full-on <laughs> industrial. Like they have a bakery, a silkscreen business, they do maintenance, they do merchandise, they have a diner at City Hall now, they have cafes at LAX at the airport. And oh, wow. the entire operation is designed to find jobs for people who used to be in gangs. The slogan is nothing stops a bullet like a job. And they try to find jobs and also free counseling and also free tattoo removal for people who, in his work, Father Boyle kept finding that as far as he could tell, people were in gangs and gangs were fighting each other, not for any ideological reason or specific reason like there's violence there but there's not an actual it's not northern ireland or the middle east or something where people also have ideological or cultural differences like he felt gangs were just fighting because they were in abject despair that that was the entire reason and so he felt that the way he could do the most and best work for his community is to like rebuild it in a, in an economic way, cultural way, uh, mental health way, everything. And they have done incredible work for just, just tons and tons of people in LA. That's awesome. And he calls it homeboy industries, which is so fun too. Cause it's, there's a picture of him. He's like elderly, not elderly, but he's older and you know, he's a white guy and, and he, called Soundboy Ministries. It's just adorable in its own way. But the the intention is is good and it sounds like they're doing really good work. Yeah, because there's no there's no like judgment of that culture in and of itself. It's purely, hey, you can live a positive life as a human being and be yourself. And here's where you can do it. Like come and come and join us. This reminded me of and I wrote a whole thing about it. I grew up in a Baptist church and in in my circle there were like not Pentecostal groups on the periphery, but like, you know, all kinds of evangelical groups. Um, And one of them was this church called Victory Ministries. And their story starts with a a 
former heroin addict who uh, wrote a book called Outcry in the Barrio, and he had, he ta- uh, his name is Freddie Garcia, and yeah. his church started as a drug rehab kind of program. And so I just remember that the, there were these really like hardcore Christian people in my circle that were a little bit more excited than I was. And this, and I, I didn't put these connections between this is a specific church started by this one guy. He wrote that book and everyone, when I was a kid, <laughs> I just took it for granted that people who go to church help the people in their community because that's like what what I saw like that was it's built into going to church that you're supposed to put in a certain amount of time and I mean and literally in some churches you're supposed to put in a certain amount of hours to serve underprivileged yeah. people and maybe you're you're tying that with an evangelical message but at the heart of it you're that's what you're here to do and I wonder if, you know, as we become more secular over the last couple of decades, if people know that, like if people who have never been to church know that that what Father Boyle is doing and what uh, Mr. Garcia did, I think he passed away, is the norm. Really, I mean, like it's not the norm in, in the sense that these guys are excellent at it, but it is the norm in that when you go to church, you're expected to help people and that there's a structured way that's provided to you to uh, serve your community. And when you don't go to church, this is one thing I miss, is that you don't have that structure anymore. You're not necessarily regularly giving over a check every week that also contributes towards helping people. Or that I hope that listeners know that that's a part of what a lot of Christian churches do and that it's not all about, like the narrative is kind of focused over the last couple of years on where different groups stand on certain issues like gay rights and abortion. And and those are important to know, but I don't know that people understand the other piece of what churches are doing all over the country and all over the world, which is just kind of helping people all the time. Well, because also when you talk about Freddie Garcia and your own growing up there, that was in South Texas. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And then, and now you're in Idaho. And so these are, these are anecdotes from literally across the country. Like it's, it's all over the place. There are, and those aren't the only situations. There are people who are part of churches doing good works. It's part of, yeah, it's just kind of, and, and maybe you remember this growing up too for your church. Like it's just kind of part of the system. It's, you get your message. There's a, there's a story there that you're, bringing in, you also have a community of people that you see every week. And then you're also expected to serve the bigger community or the world, yeah. because that's what all these missions are. Like there were always opportunities to go to other countries and do mission work. And and I, and I know that's like, some of it would be considered like volunteer tourism, but I mean, like, it's like on the ground doing stuff, teaching and um, helping and building buildings, like literally building stuff in other countries. And that's, I miss that. I I think that that's something that I would like to put back into my life in a more structured way. My 
dad's Catholic. I grew up in that. And then also my mom's Presbyterian. So I was partly in that church too. And I, yeah, both of those churches also, the community was about like, can you donate something this week? Can you help next week? We're up to things. Like they would, I think the Presbyterian church had an ongoing relationship with a town in Cuba where they would go and just work okay, and yeah. like you say, build oh, wow. homes, you know, like I do think there are secular approaches to a lot of those same good works and things you can do. But also, like you say, I think it's underreported lately that a lot of churches are involved in positive activities because I think, yeah, most mm-hmm. of the media around uh, contemporary Christianity is accurate, but it's focused on the political stances and uh, like hardline lobbying that some of them are doing. Right. And that's not the only thing they're up to in most cases. Yeah. Hurricane season is coming up and I know there are churches already probably getting ready for it. You know, some places hit by a hurricane, they open up their doors, they've got infrastructure to help a lot of churches. There's people out there that are doing what they, their best to, to help. And they go to churches and it's part of their mission. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's like a nice thing to have in one's mind, you know, that like, oh, there are people yeah. trying to do very, very good work. There's even a, in, I think recent times, there's been a few stories of um, like either, either terrible people or mentally ill people like uh, committing like weird hate crimes where they like deface graves in a Jewish cemetery or something. And then there'll be a next story of interfaith work by churches, mosques, synagogues, like, like working together oh, to help yeah. people afterward, you know? And it's great because pretty much every religion has love at its core. And, and that's a great thing. Yeah. Oh, that just feels good. Let's, uh, let's look at, yeah. uh, let's look at a, a next person, Robin Emmons. And this is someone who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and her story is that she had a brother who was mentally ill and uh, ended up homeless because of that and was like like finding food in the trash and so on. And she managed to get her brother off the street and into treatment in 2008. But then she found that while he was in this treatment facility, he developed diabetes and the reason that it uh, she could find for that was that the facility was just giving the patients canned and packaged food because they couldn't afford fresh, healthy food because they, like a lot of parts of Charlotte, North Carolina, were in a food desert. They didn't have easy mm-hmm. access or affordable access to like fruit or vegetables. Right. What she did is she said, well, I know how to garden and I have some space in my garden, so I'll just start growing you guys some produce. And then sort of like Dr. Abdi in Somalia, she just kept finding there was more and more and more need for this. Like they at uh, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, they did a study of the city and found that 72,000 people were in a food desert in their town. And so she kept growing food for people because people kept needing just fresh fruits and vegetables. And she built a nonprofit called So Much Good, S-O-W, Much Good, fun pun, great job, that uh, has grown 26,000 pounds of fresh produce for the city of Charlotte. Yay. Oh, sold at half of the store price. That's awesome. That's that's really cool. Because also, I guess, initially she was just donating it, and then she realized that her effort would just kind of end there if she donated it all and ran out of stuff. So then she started selling it for a rock bottom price that let her keep going and keep doing it. Yeah. And also gardening is so good for people. And I assume she probably has volunteers who are participating. There are lots of community programs around the country where kids are getting involved with their own gardens at schools. And um, I know my kids took a gardening class at school. It was in the curriculum and everyone should type in CSA, which is a community supported 
community supported agriculture. So if you type that into your own Google, you might have local farms pop up or you might have your farmers markets pop up or you might see, yeah, everybody type in CSA, eat some good food, it'll be good for you. Yeah. And think your local farmers and gardeners. If you do it on your phone, it'll probably even check your location. You know, it'll be that yeah, much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mentioned food deserts before, and I don't think I fully set up what that is. It's basically a situation where where you live is not close enough to a grocery store, right? Because I don't think everybody realizes that about, especially major cities, because you think there are all these right. people there, there must be all the resources, but there are large chunks of major cities which are called food deserts because there's just not a grocery store in reasonable distance or reasonable transit access to like buy fresh food. Like you don't have what I think many of us take for granted as a piece of infrastructure around us where you can go and buy a, an apple. Some people straight up cannot get to fruit. <laughs> and so it's very yeah. uh, amazing that she's working on that. Because speaking of uh, cities and their needs, uh, Christy brought up Little Miss Flint. And she's, uh, she's amazing. Let's get into her. Okay. So I found out about Little Miss Flint on Twitter. I don't remember the exact context or who tweeted her or whatever. But there was this hashtag called Dear Flint Kids that I clicked on at one point And then I just fell in love with this little girl. So some background honors. This is a little girl who lives in Flint, Michigan, where there is still not good water, still. And a few years ago, she wrote a letter to President Obama asking him to come visit and, and yeah. telling him our water is still bad. So she wrote a letter to President Obama, and he came to see her. And there's beautiful video that everybody has to watch where she just runs up to him, gives him a hug, and he picks her up. And it was just a really sweet moment so oh and when she wrote the letter she was eight she's now 10 i think and she was called little miss flint because she had won a beauty pageant the year before so that's her that's just what people call her um so she she's a title holder she actually yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah so she has this twitter account and i don't know if she has a teacher or if it's her mom who's helping helping run the account i don't think she's the only person i don't think this little 10 year old girl is managing the account by herself i hope so I clicked on Dear Flint Kids, and that's when I first found out about her. And what it is, it's an initiative to get a letter to every child in Flint, Michigan, a letter of encouragement. And it's not, and it was very important. The instructions were, this is not a time for you to say, I can't believe they haven't fixed your water yet, or a time for you to say, I, I'm so sorry and sad for you because they don't want these kids who are still... <laughs> I just I can't even comprehend this. Still living without good water. They don't want them to feel like victims or to feel like it was so they don't feel forgotten. They want yeah. to be heard and listened to. And they want to remind us that this is still an issue without turning those kids into victims. So they put out this hashtag, Dear Flint Kids, for people to send out letters. And I think they made their goal. People all over the world sent letters of encouragement to the children in Flint. And um, so every day that you would see if you were following her account, oh, I haven't even said her name yet. Her name is Mari Kopany, and I hope I'm saying it right. Um, yeah. You would see a picture of this little girl like with a box of letters that she's <laughs> that she received. Or, and, and then there would be like a teacher or someone in the background that's like helping manage all of this. And then there'd be like teachers took this up, people all over the country took it up and they sent letters to these children just to remind them that we're proud of them and that, 
hang in there and we haven't forgotten you and you're, you know, just letters of encouragement. The Black Panther thing I thought was really cool too. They did a GoFundMe. They paid for a lot of kids to see Black Panther, which to me is also very cool. This article says uh, 150 kids and then there were hopefully more from there, but either way, that's amazing. Yeah. So this is just a, she's just 10, but she's was a young ambassador at the Women's March. She's seems like a really bright little girl and she's got a good support system and her her feed is her twitter feed is very encouraging and just a nice thing to follow like it's always good to hear about kids who are saving the world especially anybody getting into activism and caring about others at age eight like when i when i was eight the world was me I was focused (laughs) on the entire world, which was this guy. I I hope everybody takes a look at this account. Like you say, like uh, the Flint water crisis, which is a story that everyone has heard of, but it it did begin in 2014. And then on on quick Googling what I can find, they say that uh, the new pipes and the new infrastructure, obviously infrastructure takes time, but it's looking like it won't be completed sooner than 2020. And water, water is a pretty pressing issue. You can't uh, just kind of skip it for a few years. It's a, a it's a whole generation <laughs> of people that have come up and do they bring in water every single day for yeah. regular use? I believe like it's cooking and bathing, and I mean, I'm just well, because for one thing, if if you just care about like government not wasting money, then you should be horribly upset by how that whole thing has gone because they tried to save money by switching water sources, but they didn't treat the water. And so now they're spending way more money than they ever would have to like truck in bottled water a lot. Residents are, uh, even though in 2017, residents were told the water quality was now acceptable, which is not a a word that inspires confidence, but Mm -mm. acceptable. Uh, But they've been told they should still use bottled or filtered water as much as possible. So I, as far as I know, people are just kind of stitching together a way to have enough water to live as much as they can, which is uh, being worked on, but probably not fast enough. So good for this eight-year-old for being more on top of it than uh, than many members of government. And I like I like that she's not the one who's like got a microphone saying we've got to fix this. What like I think one of the things that I've seen is that they have people working on it, and that's not her message. Her message is we're still here. We're we're going to keep going. We're doing our best. I like that her message is positive, and that's very, I appreciate that. Yeah, me too. It's a little counterintuitive almost. Like it's, and, and mm-hmm. great. It's, it's neat that she found that. Yeah. Let's look at another um, person who's uh, working in New York City. That's Elvin Irby. So, Elvin Irby is a person who has been a comedian and a, a former kindergarten teacher and lives in New York City. And he saw that there's just low literacy in, in particular, the black community, that, uh, that young kids and especially young boys are just not getting the education and reading they need, which I don't know if you've learned to read, but it's pretty handy for learning everything else in the entire world. It's great. So he decided that a great way he could be active in his community and help people is he could combine books that kids actually want to read and kids are excited about with local barbershops because especially young boys are just at the barbershop all the time. Like you just constantly receive so trims brilliant. and haircuts as a little boy. <laughs> You're like a crazy, I'm, crazy kudzu kind of plant or something. Like you need constant <laughs> trimming, you know? 
And so he he created a very specific set of 15 books that through surveying actual kids, he found out that actual kids wanted to read. And then he set up miniature libraries in barbershops across New York City in a program called Barbershop Books. Very straightforward. And so since kids are sitting around the barbershop, either waiting for their turn for a haircut or like waiting for their parents to get a haircut, meanwhile, they will read a really enjoyable book and uh, they can take them with them because there's this great NPR story about Elvin Irby going around to barbershops to replace books that have been taken because he knows kids just walk off with them sometimes because they're excited, Mm -hmm. which means it's working, by the way. And so he just happily replaces them. And then he's been able to reach, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of kids in New York City in a way that no one just thought to. No one just came up yeah. with Yeah. And it's so it's so smart because you go to the barber, yeah, when you're a little boy, once you start getting your hair cut, that's like a regular part of your routine. But it's not when you're in kindergarten necessarily. It's way earlier. So it's almost like an early intervention. And it's kids who, you know, maybe their parents have books at home, but maybe they haven't thought about that yet. You know, you've got family, you've got stuff you're dealing with. I've got to go get this kid's haircut. I haven't necessarily started on phonics and reading and and all of that yet. And he's probably got the first books for some kids, you know, like this might be their very first encounter with books. And so just getting them to become familiar with them and, and appreciate books and have a good positive experience with books um, is so smart. I'm, I'm just really impressed. What a good idea. Yeah, it's on so many levels. Like even there's pictures in this story where there's the little rack of books from his group, Barbershop Books, and it's compact in a brilliant way. Like it fits in the floor space below the coat rack. (laughs) And like, so any barbershop would not feel like, it's like, oh, can you give up one square foot of space? Yeah, sure. No problem. It's fine. And he also is, he's also very thoughtful about the books that he provides. He wants children of color to see protagonists of color, but he doesn't necessarily want all the books to be about Harriet Tubman. This is something that um, we've actually talked about in an article that When it was in development, the title was Surreal Realities uh, Black Children Face Every Day. Like things that you just kind of don't think about. And one of them was it's very hard to find books with children of color on the covers that aren't about slavery and aren't about like civil rights issues. They're just children being children. And he addresses that like he's looking for fun books <laughs> too, but he also wants children of color to see children of color in their books and not it be a history lesson, which I think is a very thoughtful, fun, smart thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, and as he says in this interview, he looked at books of, aimed at specifically young black audiences and he describes it as, quote, slavery, civil rights, slavery, civil rights, biography, mm-hmm. slavery. And then he he says <laughs> that he asked librarians if they could name two laugh out loud picture books with a black protagonist librarians couldn't do it and so then alvin irby mm-hmm. wrote a book he he wrote a children's book called gross <laughs> greg about a little black boy who loves to eat his boogers you call them boogers greg calls them delicious sugars and you need goofy funny books where you're Everybody represented does. as a kid it's great and i i had a ton of them cuz there's like there's even alexander and the horrible no good very bad day connected with that kid yes. his name was alex very easy direct Absolutely. you know and uh, <laughs> he's filling a need for kids across the country uh, as best he can by just doing it himself that's awesome 
Yeah. So smart. And he's a stand-up comedian, so he does like benefits at comedy clubs and brings the comedy community into it. It's it's amazing. So then, Christy, you also found uh, a neat thing happening across the world from this in the country of Turkey uh, with their garbage men. Talk about that. I wonder about this one. So there are garbage men in Turkey who decided to just start saving books that they saw in the trash and they created a library out of the books that they saw in the trash. Now, I think that's cool. I wonder who's using that library. Like, I'm trying to picture people lining up to go into the library where they know everything has been in the trash at one point, but it's still a cool thing. I hate the idea of throwing away books. And I know librarians have to get rid of books at some point, too, when they just have too many. I love the idea of books having a a second home all together, all the trash books (laughs) in in one big building. Um, But yes, there are Turkish garbage men who have created a whole library just out of books that have been thrown away. Well, because you you found the CNN story about it, and they... It started with garbage men occasionally just finding entire bags that they could tell were just books. Like, it's not like the books were covered in food or something. You know, it's like, oh, this is just yeah, books yeah, being yeah, thrown yeah. away. Yeah. And yeah. now they took a previously vacant brick factory that nobody was using and they turned it into a library of over 6,000 books. And then the story says they also loan the books out to schools and educational programs and even prisons. So whether or not anybody can get to this weird brick factory, the books are doing good work. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. (laughs) When you say like, oh, I don't want to throw out books, like I feel the same way. And especially when I, I lived in Brooklyn and there was this culture of, I think nobody wanted to throw out books. Like, uh-huh. so people would, when they were done with a set of books, just leave them in a box on their stoop because they oh. didn't want to throw them out. And they also hoped people found them. It was like an expression of that wish, but it wasn't perfect. Cause like maybe nobody comes and grabs them. Maybe they get rained on, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's That's just true. like yeah. everybody knew we needed something to do with these old books and no one had had the wherewithal of these Turkish garbage men to like put together a thing, <laughs> like good for them. There aren't enough well-known stories of like a profession that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a love of literature, like okay, caring yeah. about it. You know, yeah. it's just really cool. Like I, people yeah. underrate garbage men and they, uh, they're humans with, with thoughts and feelings and have thought of this. Good for them. Yeah, I'm just gonna keep the world moving. Support for today's show comes from people who keep me comfy. They are Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Like me, that is, because I have been sleeping on a Casper mattress for months And I just keep like taking it for granted how comfortably I'm sleeping. And then stuff like this reminds me that, oh, right, I have the correct mattress. That's why I feel so good. It really fits me well. It also came packed in a box that is very small in the best way. I could get it 
up my stairs without like bending or folding stuff or, you know, like rearranging my entire apartment because he wants to do that. No, got it right upstairs. It popped out of the box like a science fiction creature in the best way and just unfolded right there on my bed in a very handy way. And now I sleep great. Do it yourself. Because you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That is casper.com slash cracked. And then the offer code cracked gets you $50 off your mattress purchase. That's a lot of money. Use it. Terms and conditions apply. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy community that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. There's all kinds of approaches to getting therapy for yourself, mental health care for yourself. And if you can't imagine fitting anything else into your life, you can use Talkspace because it's as easy as sending your therapist a message. You can get something off your chest whenever you need to. Talk about everyday challenges. There's no commute, no leaving the office, and no judgments to get therapy. Therapy isn't just about venting your innermost thoughts or digging into childhood memories. It's also about practical everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. And having a therapist simply provides you a designated person for you to talk to who is trained to listen and help you make positive changes. And the Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges we all face. To match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash Cracked and use the code Cracked to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show we do. That is the offer code Cracked and Talkspace.com slash Cracked. This is another book story because uh, there's quite a bit of writing on Cracked about many things, including this kind of thing. And there's an article called Six Sworn Enemies Who Teamed Up and Kicked Ass. Uh, and it's by A.C. Grimes. We'll link to it. But one entry in it, they're not quite enemies or something like that, but there's a surprising pairing of a well-to-do lawyer in Boston named Peter Resnick. And then there's a guy, uh, we just know him as Rob, uh, who was a homeless uh, military veteran in Boston. And the story is that unlike what you would expect, especially with like a movie lawyer where they're on like a giant 80s cell phone and have no time for anyone, you know, Mr. Resnick stopped uh, walking and got to know Rob when Rob asked him for help on the street. And they got to know each other so well that Resnick bought Rob a book because uh, everyone likes to read and they connected and he was like, oh, I think you'd enjoy this book. And then they met up later and uh, Mr. Resnick found out that not only had Rob read the book, but he shared it with all of the other homeless people in Boston Common and in that area. Uh, Boston Common's a big park in Boston, if people don't know. And he realized, oh, like, there's a real appetite for reading among the homeless. They have time. They want to experience ideas. You know, great. And Mm -hmm. so what he did is he started a book club for the area's homeless people. And it, he was able to draw in, uh, like, a number of homeless people from the area. They also apparently loved the book club so much that Mr. Resnick also offered to buy them lunch there. And they said, no, 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 don't worry about that. We're just really excited about the book club. Like, let's just do that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But uh, Mr. Resnick uh, built this uh, book club with Rob and with other homeless people there. And then the story got around to other people, other places. And since then, there have been 26 more uh, sort of copycat book clubs for the homeless in cities in the U.S. and Europe. Like as far as way as Barcelona, people were like, I will start a book club for homeless people in my community because uh, I don't know. People forget that the homeless don't just need resources. They also need like to be treated like people. And so it's just an amazing story of people treating people like people. 
Like they need what yeah. we all need, companionship and, and society and fellowship, you know? And so he found a pretty amazing way to go about that. While we're in cities, uh, especially in the U.S., we can also look at sort of political stuff because Christy found this amazing guy named Larry Krasner out in, uh, is that in Philly? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, the district attorney. Um, and this is a new story. He's the new district attorney in Philadelphia, and he ran on a platform of dealing with issue of mass incarceration. A few weeks ago, he just sent out a memo, <laughs> and his memo was like, we're not going to put people in jail for as long as we used to. And it was just very, like, it's just a memo. But it, I'm, I'm going to read a quote. It instructs prosecutors to cease charging certain offenses entirely, including possession of marijuana regardless of weight carried, and prostitution in some circumstances. And it encourages assistant DAs to punish people with house arrest, probation, alternative sen- sentencing. He's trying to change the culture, and it's just started with a memo. It's so bold. But it's also, I, I'm curious to see what happens and how it works out. He also, in this memo, requested that his prosecutors tie their, like out loud in their request for sentencing, tie the, their sentence request to the long-term financial out, long-term financial consequences of what they're asking for. I'll just read a quote here. He asks his prosecutors to point out in the court the impact that the recommended sentence would have on the defendant's family, their employment, their access to public assistance. They must state how much the sentence would cost taxpayers um, because the cost of one year of unnecessary incarceration is forty-two dollars to $60,000. And that's in the range of a teacher or a police officer or a firefighter. Do we want this person in jail for a year? Do we want to hire another social worker? You know, like it's just a really bold, smart idea that starts with a memo. And I hope it does well. And uh, like the headline on the Mother Jones article that I found this on was Philadelphia's district attorney just showed America's prosecutors how to end mass incarceration. So I, it's a still a new thing. Hopefully it works out really well, but it sounds like it might, like it's just a good idea. I feel like especially in American politics, we tend to just think about the absolute largest offices. Like, especially when a celebrity wants to get into politics, they're like, I'm running for president. And like, no, there's so many other offices that do so many other important things that matter. And this guy is a city district attorney who has decided, I am going to max out the power of this office to try to improve how criminal justice works. I love this requirement to tie this consequence to the crime and the long-term impact. And I think it's a good beginning because we've been hearing about mass incarceration for a while and like what a devastating impact it's had on certain communities. And like there's whole generations of people that haven't had their men (laughs) for a while. Like it's just a devastating idea that people can be locked into the system for small things, you know, or or like for marijuana and then for probationary issues after that. And for him to say, you have to look at these people as humans with families and a long-term future, like we don't want them in jail for forever. It's not good for anybody. You're forced to create a plan or to think about them as people and how this, um, how this punishment is going to really help them. You know, because that's the point, right? You you want to punish them if they've done something wrong, but you don't want to punish them forever. 
you know, I, I, mean, I assume this is not a conversation that's being had around murderers. You know, I'm assuming right. these are all small, <laughs> small crimes that they're talking about. So I, I, this is exciting and I'm, I'm hoping that it does well. Also, a lot of these people we're talking about today are building new things, right? Like they're building new organizations, new infrastructure, new ways to do things. And Mr. Krasner is using an existing kind mm -hmm. of office and organization that is just not, doesn't just seem, just doesn't seem to be that active in general. People aren't thinking about that mm -hmm. much. Like in one of the articles about him, they quote the founder of Real Justice PAC, which is a Bernie Sanders related political action committee. But um, the founder of this, Becky Bonds, said about 80% of district attorneys, when they come up for election, no one challenges the incumbent. So, like, most okay. of these offices are sort of, once you get it, it seems like you're just kind of in it in most cities. And so maybe you don't, like, do a lot as far as, like, trying to innovate or trying to change things. And Mr. Krasner is. And, like, even if you feel that we need to jail everybody, he's explicitly in memos and, and probably in other ways pitching the question of, hey, one year of incarceration, at least in Philly, costs between forty two and $60,000 which is right. in the range of the cost of one year's salary for a beginning teacher, police officer, firefighter, social worker, assistant district attorney, or addiction counselor. Everything I just said is a quote from that memo that we talked about. Like it's, ask, it's asking questions that it seems like aren't even being asked in the first place, let alone answered one way or another. It's great. Yeah, yeah. He's reimagining this job. And that in itself is always exciting. Like when you like you said, take something that we know about or that or maybe you don't think about a lot and you rethink it and probably save a lot of lives. Like, I don't know, like entire generations of families are going to be impacted by this if it works. And that's very yeah. exciting. You also picked out in advance of this another bureaucrat because, hey, many of them are uh, great and doing great work. And uh, Francis Oldham Kelsey is someone who we're we're talking about contemporary people. Uh, this person died very very recently, um, but uh, she did incredible work for decades, improving all of our lives, and most of us don't know it. So Francis Oldham Kelsey was a scientist who worked with the FDA, I believe. One of her jobs was to she was like one of the three people at the time who could say no to drugs, like not say no to drugs, like crack, whatever, <laughs> but like say this drug is not safe yet. You need to prove that it's safe. I say no. It's, we, we're not going to put this out into the public. It's not ready. Um, so one of the drugs that came to her table when she was, I think it was 1960, was thalidomide. I'm going to say it like that. That's how I'm going to say it. So um, there was this drug that was being administered in other countries, like in Canada and Europe, um, for women when they were pregnant. And it was like a nausea treatment. And when it this drug was pitched to the United States, this lady, Frances Oldman Kelsey, just said there wasn't enough evidence that it's safe yet. And she said no. Um, and it turned out that it wasn't. <laughs> because even though it helped women who were pregnant, like with their nausea, it, it caused extreme birth defects in their babies, their unborn babies. So there's like a generation of kids who are were born with um shrunken limbs or no limbs and it's a really tragic situation yeah. and this one lady kind of said you know no to the this 
happening in America. Which helped just so many thousands of people. She uh, And she did that in 1960, according to this. And, yeah. And, which is very early on. And then from there, the FDA, uh, she was working there, and they basically found a new gig for her running a department that did even more investigation of these kinds of drugs. And so it made the organization a lot more active in seeking them out. And then she didn't retire until 2005 when she was age 90. So That's like awesome. with a lot of historical figures, let's say, because she her most famous uh, great work was in 1960. A lot of historical figures, I feel like they're just famous for that one thing. And then you never think about what else she did. She like hit it out of the park with saving a bunch of people and then just kept going for decades. It's an incredible person that would do something like that for so long and into our all of our lifetimes listening to this it's amazing and there's a whole like story on the on how she the process that she went through like there there was you know specific questions she was asking that couldn't be answered and there were um she was familiar with drugs effects on unborn babies and rabbits and so she had that in her brain but she was only one of like three people with this job and if she had had oh, too many other things to do that day. <laughs> or yeah. like, it just, she could, I could just picture how easy it is. Like, yeah, it's probably fine. And yeah, it did get distributed in samples to a few doctors and they did administer it because like I said, it was already getting administered around the world. So there right. were 17 cases of deformities in the United States before the before she had shut it down. But that's tiny compared to other countries. Yeah, absolutely. We are sure she saved a bunch of kids. Like it definitely yeah. didn't work, but uh, like you say at the time the common wisdom was just, ah, this is what what they do in in cosmopolitan Europe. So let's do it here. And no, <laughs> not going to do. What you what you just said about the risk of someone in her job being just too busy or distracted to be fully on the ball with this terrible drug. <laughs> like she According to this Washington Post story about her, when she started up at the FDA, they stuck her in a very tiny cubbyhole of an office in like an old prefab World War One building. So like once once <laughs> your job one. does that to you, like you kind of check out, right? You would think. No, she's on the ball yeah. fixing stuff. Oh, she needs a movie. This is like Oscar material here. We need to get Meryl Streep on this role. Let's look next at this is something that is ongoing right now and, and particularly technological, uh, which is exciting to me. Um, this is a group called Project Mosul, and uh, there's okay. a great write-up of them in Smithsonian Magazine where um, one of the sort of side effects of there being a lot of activity of terrorist groups in the Middle East is some of them feel they need to destroy historical sites. Um, the Taliban famously did that with uh, giant statues of Buddha, and um, there are other groups like ISIS that are just smashing and destroying historical antiquities. With Project Mosul, they're mainly dealing with Iraq and Syria, where which is where a lot of the current destruction is happening. So we can be specific about there. And they're in particular in the city of Mosul, which is in northern Iraq. There were two grad students named Matthew Vincent and Chance Koganur. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. They saw videos of terrorists destroying sites in Mosul. And they said, we need to do something to save these. Also, we don't have an army. So what do we do? And so okay. what they did is they started gathering photos of the historical sites and artifacts. And then they also started using 3D modeling software 
and they combine those to build like permanent virtual versions of historical sites in Mosul. So it's not there's it's not saving them, but also they don't have the military force as grad students to right. save them. Uh, so and what they're doing or is or time machines. So when we get time <laughs> machines, then we can save them. But until then, this is a good solution. Yeah, yeah, for not having a magic DeLorean. It's pretty good. Like, it's great. <laughs> uh, and so they're in the most high-tech and, and tactile way they can, saving virtual versions of these places. Their group's uploaded 2,600 images, and volunteers have logged more than 100,000 work sessions to match photos to objects and run them through modeling software. So you end up with these sites in a permanent virtual way. And from there, they're building what they're calling a Mosul Museum, where you can use a basic VR headset, uh, like Google Cardboard or something like that, to walk around Mosul and check it out. That is cool. Is it accessible yet? Or like, can regular people see this stuff yet? Or is it still in the works? The write-up I've got is from two years ago, March of 2016. So I would imagine it's close if not there because they the technology already exists. It was just a trick of getting enough work hours and effort together. Because also a lot of these old sites and old cities, I feel like maybe part of what terrorists don't like about them is that they are diverse in their history because lots of places mm-hmm. in the Middle East have changed hands a lot. And so there's places like Palmyra. There's another group that which is just named hashtag new Palmyra, which started in 2005. It was an activist named Basel Kartabil, a Syrian advocate of free speech and, and preserving history. And there's an over 2,000-year-old city site of Palmyra, which was a Hebrew city and a Roman city, and many other people owned it. And it was being destroyed. Uh, So he aimed to document the ruins as best as possible with less of the technology that Project Mosul is doing, but a lot more just photography, recording it, and and, uh, trying to document as much of it as possible before it's destroyed. And so he did it with a crowdsourced online group of people And they've carried on doing that with original writing and art shows and music, even after Mr. Cartabil was arrested in 2012 for pushing for free speech in Syria, which the government doesn't like. Um, But it's an amazing piece of work with history that we would otherwise lose. And and we wouldn't necessarily only lose it to terrorists. Like, this this is a really good idea for everything. (laughs) Because just wear, you know, just like time is going to wear down some of this stuff or pollution or, you know, tourists always being around. Like there's lots of reasons why it would be great to preserve stuff in this way um, when just natural forces are going to destroy it. So that's cool. Because, yeah, you're right. There are also, there's a lot of projects, even in the U.S., like StoryCorps and other groups that are just trying to record people's oral histories of living through the Great Depression and World War II before that generation passes away. And, like, yeah, these things erode naturally if we don't document them and do something. But, you know, let's talk about, uh, this is another person from a, uh, a crack piece. This is called Six Awesome Stories of Bystanders Becoming Heroes. It's written by Paul K. Pickett. And I want to pick out Hideaki Akaiwa, who was a Japanese man who uh, lived through the Tohoku earthquake in 2011. Earthquakes can often lead to tsunamis in a coastal place, and a tsunami wiped out his whole town. And in the afterward, he was like, where is my wife and where is my mother? I can't find them. And he realized that his town was under 10 feet of water, so they were probably somewhere in there. 
and he strapped on scuba gear and went and found his wife and got her out of there. He then went and found his mom, who the story is is a little bit funny there because his mom was on the second floor of a building just hanging out like, oh, well, someone will save me. And then her son did. He like <laughs> scuba dived in with gear. That's amazing on its own. But from there, he got, went on to just keep on looking for strangers in the wreckage of this town. Like, he saved his two key people, and most of us would <laughs> uh, go home just and like sleep a for a week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he just strapped on gear and kept going. I wonder what the time frame for this was. Like, <laughs> like I'm picturing it all happening in a few hours, but... Like, do you swim to the building where you suspect your mother? I don't know. Like, how? I wonder how long this took for him to find his people. The story describes him. He he found his wife in their house, so he knew where to go. But he had to swim through dark, cold water full of like garbage and chunks of buildings and downed power lines. Uh, I don't know if anybody's seen G.I. Joe, but they're very clear about down power lines being dangerous. And, and he got right on through it and and saved his wife through that. And then he managed to find his mom in her house. So the, the detection of the specific people, he knew where to go. Incredibly dangerous process of getting there. And he didn't stop. Wow. it's amazing. So I want to talk about Estella Pyfrom. This is an 80-year-old lady who has lived an incredible life. She was yeah. a teacher. She retired after 48 years, but then she was like, ah, I'm going to go back. <laughs> she went back. <laughs> um, and I don't know at what part she decided to do this cool thing that we're about to talk about. But um, at some point she used her retirement money. So she's 80 years old now. She'd used her retirement money to buy and customize a bus and outfit it with computers because some t- communities, they don't have good like computer labs for their students. And so she said, oh, I'll just bring them a computer lab myself and my bus and I'm 80 years old and I'm going to implement this as an 80 year old lady with my retirement money. And she did. So yeah. it's called Estella's Brilliant She's the CEO. What she has done is created a mobile computer lab that can go to the students where they don't have one. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, especially like you say, she's uh, in her 80s and she did this after 50 years as a classroom teacher and a school guidance counselor and I think briefly an assistant principal. We we probably should just do a show listing people who taught for 50 years because thank you. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, but she did all that and was like, and my pension is going to buy this coach bus and outfit it to help kids learn about technology. Amazing. And she did it. I mean, it's the execution part that I'm like so impressed because, you know, I can't even take care of my own car well enough to be able to <laughs> brag about it. <laughs> but she was able to to pull this off. And uh, so this is really exciting. It's also exciting to me just in general to see someone who's made it to 80 and is still excited about projects and active and doing things. And you read her her bio and it just keeps going and going. All the stuff that she's done in her life. Like yeah. she taught for 50 years, but she was also a group homeowner. And she took care of mentally and physically challenged people. And she was a mediator for neglected abused children. And also she took them into her home. 
And also she <laughs> had a culinary arts degree of some kind and a cake decorating degree. And I feel like this is like my goals. Like you just keep going and finding interesting things to do. And maybe you're saving the world at the same time, whatever. But like just getting to hear about people who have done exciting things and keep doing exciting things and don't stop when they're 80 is is heroic. Especially that positive vibe you talk about really comes through on her site. Like you in the notes here, Christy, you picked out that there's one line where she says, Estella Pyfram is the proud mother of four well-adjusted children, 13, <laughs> parentheses 13, grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Like, she is clearly very proud of them in the best way. I, I don't know if she's the one who wrote that or if it was, like, <laughs> one of her kids, but somebody was, like, well-adjusted. That's got to get in there because that's, like, got to be yeah. her proudest accomplishment if it's in there. Like, she, <laughs> she is really proud that her adult children, who are probably now in their 60s, are well-adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> and that, too, that's hard to do. It's hard to raise well-adjusted people, so... Good for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, like we say, beyond that, she did this bus to, because in particular, I don't know if people are totally aware that like underprivileged communities have a really hard time getting access to like technology. Like, I mean, we think, oh, everyone has phones now, but like getting used to getting to have computer access, even maybe learning to code or something like that. And uh, since 2012, she's helped over 300,000 underprivileged kids learn about tech by driving it to them. It's amazing. Oh, I hope she's not the one driving. Like, I hope she's, like, just kicking back somewhere and somebody else is, like, <laughs> driving this <laughs> bus around. <laughs> but then again, I, maybe she would be having fun. Maybe that would be fun for her. She's got her music playing. She's driving her bus, having a great time. There's this, uh, we'll link it, a great article in Pacific Standard Magazine about her. And it says that she grew up in poverty with a father who was a migrant worker who drove a bus that brought other migrant workers from gig to gig. And it says mm. he taught his daughter, Estella, to drive a bus. So the article <laughs> implies like that's part of the setup here is that she felt able to drive her own brilliant bus. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. We've got time for a few more people, even though the world is packed with amazing badasses. One of them, uh, going back to six awesome stories of bystanders becoming heroes, uh, there's a man named Didar Hossein. Again, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Didar Hossein was uh, living in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and working at a factory where he made uh, about 68 US dollars worth of money a month. And then across the street was a building called Rana Plaza. And it's not very it's not very well known, I think, here. Um, but the building was a terrible, terrible architectural collapse. Like it was not built to code, and they basically had several factories built in the various floors of it, and the equipment was too heavy, and it all collapsed. This killed 1,135 people. It led oh to gosh. 38 murder charges of the various people involved in this building being poorly put together, and it happened across the street from his job. And it was any collapse like that. There's all kinds of rubble and wreckage and like terrible air around, sort of, sort of like the 9-11 tragedy. Like that was a very difficult in, environment to be in. And he ran into it and saved a bunch of people. Uh, he pulled 34 people out of the rubble of this building uh, personally, just got them out one after another in a way that's like almost unimaginable heroism. It's amazing. I wonder how he's doing now. Like if there was long-term issues from being in the uh, rubble for like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like a don't 9-11 workers, a lot yeah. of them have long-term health 
consequences from being there day after day trying to work. Yeah, there's there's a story about him in 2013 still being around, but also that was, this was a very recent tragedy. But it because it, it's like you say, it was an obviously dangerous space to go into. Like people did not want to. There's a story reported in this cracked article where he also ended up performing three emergency amputations to free people <gasps> from rubble because occasionally there's oh, a uh, just oh situation gosh. where they're pretty stuck and that's how you have to get them out and that's how it is. And uh, in the article, they say that there is a doctor who he went up to to say, hey, we need to like emergency amputate this person or something, get them out of the rubble. And the doctor gave him anesthetic and a knife and said, uh, go get him, buddy, which is uh, horrifying. But also he went and like did that thing. And in the reports of him, many of them include a, you know, a picture of him with someone who he saved by uh, removing a part of their body to save their life. It's amazing. Wow. Oh, I hope he's doing okay. The trauma of having to do that, then what he saw, and then the health implications of it. Well, the, yeah, because this, this collapse was April of 2013. So just about exactly four years ago. So yeah, it's the kind of thing where if there are long-term effects, we probably don't know yet. But he he took the risk and and was heroic in the way, in a way many of us can't imagine. It's amazing, right? And let's uh, let's look at another hero. This is uh, also from the article we mentioned: six sworn enemies who teamed up and kicked ass. And this really is does involve sworn enemies because it's the story of Daryl Davis. And Daryl Davis is a black person who reached out to the KKK, a group that is not friendly to black people. Daryl Davis, we, according to a 2017 NPR report, uh, Daryl Davis has upped his KKK robe uh, uh, hood count, I guess, to 200. He goes out and gets to know members of the KKK and forms a personal relationship with them and like non-judgmentally just connects with them about ideas and how the world works. And in the process of that, he's convinced 200 KKK members and probably counting to quit the group and as a token of having quit the group, give Daryl their robes as a sign of I'm out <laughs> and you pulled me out and thank you. And and then he's just got this robe collection like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Like, I wonder if he displays them, if he like just has a closet and here are my KKK robes or if, you know, <laughs> like maybe he makes them into other things. I would like for him to start working on the Nazis. I hope that he can. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm more nervous about neo-Nazis than the KKK right now. The origin of him doing this is Daryl Davis is also like a full on professional working musician. Like he's he's uh, worked with everybody from B.B. King to Chuck Berry to Jerry Lee Lewis. Also, if uh, people know that like famous pop culture moment where Bill Clinton went on the Arsenio Hall show and played the saxophone and Daryl Davis is in the band. Like he's in the frame. Oh. You can see him in there. And uh, oh my gosh. so he's a, he's like a legit working musician and he played a gig and a KKK member came up and was like, I'm going to do a thing that surprises myself. Good job being a musician. You play like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I never thought I'd say that to a black person. And Daryl Davis was like, what, do you have a problem with black people or something? And the guy was like, yes, I'm in the KKK. I have all kinds of problems. With black <laughs> and, and instead Bold of move. just like leaving, uh, Daryl Davis got to know the guy. And then he could never quite shake how interesting that experience was. And so he decided, I'm going to learn about these people and write a book about them. I want to understand what has led them into this. And so from there, he got to know that guy and got to know their groups. And 
he did all kinds of just trying to figure them out legitimately. Like not like not just come at them and be like, you're all awful change. Right. Like he actually wants to know what they're thinking. And he's done a Reddit AMA also, which is very cool. And at one point in there, they ask him about like, are these KKK people like neo-Nazis? And he says that it actually varies between the groups. Like some of them are kind of built on these Nazi people and others like explicitly reject them. And so there's like weird overlaps there. And he probably knows more about them than most everybody. It's just amazing. Right. That's really cool. Like, And the idea of appreciating the nuances of hate groups, just to understand them is, it's so easy to just dismiss and hate the hate groups, just blanket statement. And that he wants to, he's genuinely curious about what they believe and how they're different and how he can help them is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. A quote from him is, I went in armed, not with a weapon, but with knowledge. Whether they like you or not, they respect the fact that you've done your homework. So when he goes into these groups, like he he actually figures out something about them in order to break down their uh, sort of mental walls against even speaking to him. And how many of us would even have the guts to get that far? We just want to yell and, and dismiss. That's that. That's probably the better word that I would use is just dismiss yes. people who think terrible things and not even like have enough room in our heads to w- want to understand them in any way. You don't want them to be there. So you want to put them out of your lives. So not think about them. And yeah. this man is that interested in wants to know them and, and help them. Cause that's what he's doing. He's help. He's, he's really helping them. Like it's an outreach to, to them. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Cause even like it, when we run across a hate group and reject them, even dealing with them out of hand, like we're right not we're like we're not helping the situation, but we are correct to reject hate straight uh-huh. up. But like he's doing this extra step and this extra mile that has tangible results. Yeah, I would like for him to keep going, <laughs> or maybe start training more people to do what he's doing because this is this is good. Yeah, and he and like pretty much everyone we talked about today, they're all doing it right now. How about that world? There's good stuff going on. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Christy Harrison for being an utter gem. Just great. And again, to Nicholas Spear. Great tip, man. We had a lot of fun with that. And hey, you, why don't you dive into our food notes? Because this week, they're like they're like a hall of fame of current badassery. You know, much like the major American sports have halls of fame in Canton and Cooperstown and Springfield and Charlotte and the America Plus city of Toronto, our food notes honor everybody we talked about today. Um, they also feature the excellent writing of paid Cracked freelance writers because Cracked pays freelancers to write. You could be one of them. Anyway, it features the writing of Jordan Breeding, A.C. Grimes, Kean Lastman, Brittany Patterson, Paul K. Pickett, dozens of photoplasty contributors. It is all in the footnotes because they really help make this episode come together. And hey, would you like to see a live episode of this show? Because this coming Saturday... April 14th, we are live at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. Our topic is a very fun one. It's the world's most bizarre origins and backstories of the world's biggest celebrities. An advanced sample of that show. Did you know iconic actress Michelle Pfeiffer, while new to Los Angeles, was almost sucked into a cult of breatharians? And that is a cult where they don't believe in eating or drinking anything. They feel that air gives us enough nutrients to live 
Man, LA is something. Tell you what. And there's more stories where that came from. I'll be joined on that show by comedians Matt Lieb, Jenny Jaffe, and Carrie O'Donnell. Tickets are on sale now at sunset.ucbtheater. That's theater with an R-E on the end. Sunset.ucbtheater.com. And as far as this episode goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a thing that Little Miss Flint basically redeemed. Just the best. You can find my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy community that enables you to improve your mental health from anywhere at any time, get matched with a licensed therapist from over 2,000 choices, and message them whenever you need to. No commutes and no judgments. For a special offer for our listeners, visit Talkspace.com cracked and use the code cracked to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show. Talkspace, it's therapy for how we live today. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.